Well, good morning, church. If you have your Bibles, you can open up to uh, 2 Peter chapter 2 as we uh, continue our series. Um, By way of uh, warning, we're going to talk about this morning some unpopular topics, not necessarily unpopular in the church, but definitely unpopular in in the world in which we live. And we're going to be talking about some hard things. We're going to be talking about judgment, uh, which is uh, a topic that we're not supposed to talk about. Um, We're going to be talking about truth and false teachers, which people don't, again, that's kind of a judging thing. Um, This week, uh, our small group went to uh, see this uh, documentary, and it was playing in a few theaters. We were going over to Bridgeport, a great documentary on the parting of the Red Sea that man did, and he interviews non-believers and believers on all this different evidence, and so we were going to see it, and I was coming back from Corbin, and everybody else was coming from this side of town, so I was kind of waiting for him over there in the Bridgeport area, so I went to Starbucks, Um, and I uh, had read my devotions, and I was just really sick this week. You can kind of hear it in my voice, and, uh, and that was just kind of the apex of it. I was just feeling horrible, and so I read, and then I was just staring off into space. I, honestly, I re- recognize now I just look like a weirdo in there. And, um, but there was others, so it was okay. And <laughs> as I was just sitting there staring off to space, this, uh, this man approached a couple tables over, and he had, uh, I think, a New York Times or one of the big East Coast New York newspapers. And uh, he looks over at me, and he said, that's a good book. Still had my Bible sitting there. And I looked at him, and I saw his newspaper, and I said, well, it has a better ending than that. And so, you know, it kind of started the quipping back and forth there a little bit. And there was a part of me, you know, I'll just be honest. There was a part of me that is a follower of Jesus and is your pastor and is talking about making disciples that I'm like going, okay, Dave, here it is. You know, you can have a spiritual conversation. This, this might be really good. Be ready, you know, start praying. And then there was the other part of me that was sick. And that voice was saying, go away, And I was really just like, oh. And so he sets his news. He said, I I read this every day. And he said, let me tell you why. And he he launched. And he started talking about how important the business section was and the health section and how reading these articles about this and the health and our this and that and how it changed his life and how he lost so much weight because of this, and then he went to this natural path, and his name was this, and you can find him over here, and, you can, and just all this stuff about how his life had changed because of this stuff that he had learned from the health section in the New York Times, and then he just kept talking, and he made it very clear to me in the conversation, and by the way, I hate it when Christians proselytize. So at this point, I checked out, and uh, he t- we talked about other things, and it was clear the man had a belief in God, whether he believed in Jesus. I, I didn't get there. I mean, honestly, he didn't give me many chances but, to even speak, but uh, it became very clear to me. It's okay to talk about our physical health, but it is not okay to talk about our spiritual health. 
It's okay for him to say, I was fat, but now I'm thin. I was a 42, now I'm a 32. I found energy in this natural path, and you can too, follow me. But it is wrong for me to say, I was dead. I was separated from the God who loved me and created me. But I have been found. And my eternal life has changed. Where do we get to in our society where one is okay and one is not? I came to three conclusions. One, my body offends people. It does people here too. I'm okay with that. Number two, we are obsessed with the temporal. As a society, we are obsessed with temporal things. And third, Satan has convinced people that talking about spiritual things is wrong. Now, I say all that to introduce chapter two, because apparently Peter didn't live in that culture. Let's dig into the text this morning. Chapter 2. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. Listen to that. But false teachers also arose among the people. Going back to chapter 1, he's talking about the old prophecies of uh, the Hebrew Scriptures. So he's saying even in that time, there there was false prophets, just as there will be false teachers among you. Okay? False prophets in the early history of creation. False prophets in the early part of the church. So I think we can assume false prophets here today as well. You follow that logic? Who will secretly bring in destructive heresies. Even denying the master. Now in the ESV, master is capitalized. So who are we talking about here? Jesus, even denying Jesus, who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow, how, many, okay, not a few, many will follow their sensuality. And because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. For if God did not spare the angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them example of what is going to happen to the ungodly, and if he he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul. 
over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. We're going to stop right there in the middle of verse 10. The overall theme of this section is in verse 9. He describes these false prophets and their actions, and his conclusion is, then, if this all happened, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials. Jesus rescues the righteous. So this morning, we're going to look at three attacks on righteousness, <coughs> three examples of a false faith, and five takeaways. Let's uh, look at these false teachers. First of all, false teachers, they're teaching heresies. Notice there in verse 1, secretly bringing in destructive heresies. And of those destructive heresies, the greatest one is probably this, that they deny Jesus Christ. Uh, interesting, uh, we won't read the whole thing, but 2 Peter chapter 2 and the book of Jude um, have a lot of similarities. In fact, some people struggled with um, the authorship of, of Peter in 2 Peter because of just the the tight-knit examples from both of these. But I think Jude, uh, Peter is borrowing from large portions of this other letter. <coughs> Excuse me. Jude, verse 3. Behold, although I was very eager to write to you about, the common about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once and all delivered to the saints. Now, here's a descri his description. For certain people have crept in. Peter says they have secret, they secretly bring destructive heresies. Jude says they've crept in. They've come in the side door. They've crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality, or in the NIV, a license for sensuality and deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Um, when we think of these heresies, um, first of all, they, they deny, and this aren't on your notes, they deny the authority of Jesus Christ. Uh, people, they will talk about Jesus. They will talk about the things that he said or whatever, but they deny his authority, right? They deny the master, they, not, they deny the power of Jesus. And one of the things I think is very clear in Peter's letters is that he believes that through Jesus and the filling of the Holy Spirit, as we spend time in God's word, that we are changed, that we're transformed, that something happens in us as followers of Jesus that lead us to become more and more like our Savior, Jesus Christ. And some people will talk about change, but they don't believe that Jesus has the power to change. Um, they deny the call to be different. They, they, don't, they don't believe in this idea of being holy or set apart. 
But most of all, what we see in Peter is that they deny this coming judgment. Uh, they somehow think that we're just going to kind of get to the end and, and Jesus is just going to give a free pass. And so Peter reminds us that these false teachers are headed toward swift destruction, verse 1. Swift destruction. Now, here's some marks of a false teacher. I have to say there, there hasn't been a bunch of really good commentaries on 2 Peter, so some of you might want to get out there and, and write one. Um, there's a really great article on the Gospel Coalition website by Colin Smith, and so I'm going to borrow uh, from him just for this section. How do we know a false teacher? Now, <clears throat> you've always heard, some of you have been around the church, I remember the example is, uh, I don't even know if this is true or urban legend, Frank will tell me it's true, but I, I might, I'm not sure yet, I'll have to research it. The way that they teach um, people to know, you know, false currencies, like wrong money, is that you really examine the, the real stuff. Now, the problem with this analogy is that we assume that whatever we know is right and anything anybody else says is wrong. It's, it's a bad position to start from. We're talking about these heresies. We're talking about, notice he calls them destructive heresies. So I was like thinking to myself, is there non-destructive heresies? Like, are we, are we ranking them here, right? Let me just say this. We're talking about the things that are essential to the gospel. And we need to be careful just when somebody disagrees with us on a minor point that we just, you know, want to burn them at the stake. Okay, so how do we really know this false gospel? Um, you know, just thinking through this, in Galatians, uh, Paul talks to the Galatian church and said, you have, you've mistaken the gospel. Basically, I think what Paul is saying is because you've taken the gospel plus you need to do this, 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 and this. And Peter's dealing with another problem. And that is that there's kind of nothing you've just kind of made this whole thing nothing. And, and so we go back to Jude, and he says, you've turned the grace of God into a license to do whatever you want. That's not the gospel either. And so how do we know, how do we really know what the gospel is? First of all, it comes from a different source. Um, in chapter 1, verse 16 Peter said, for we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we may know to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So look, our source, in fact, uh, in a few weeks, Peter even just kind of nails this a little bit more, and he says basically his three sources were God's word, the person of Jesus Christ, and the early teaching of the apostles. If you really want to know where we got our sources, those are, that's like the three things. And so false teachers come up with a different source. Now, false teachers may read from the Bible, but their source material comes someplace else. Second, they have a different message. Now, notice Peter's message at the beginning of, uh, of 2 Peter. Again, verse 3, his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Everything you need 
comes through the person of Jesus Christ. And it's for his glory. It's amazing how man-oriented the gospel is becoming in our culture. It becomes a different message. Third, there's a different position. In chapter 1, verse 4, he says, By which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may became, become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in this world because of sinful desires. Now, here in chapter 2, verse 19, it says, They promised them freedom but they themselves are slaves of corruption. Man, you have a group of, Peter is saying, look, we have everything we need to be changed and transformed and to be becoming like Christ. And these people talk about the freedom you have, but they're becoming more like the world. You can see it. You can see it in people because they have a different character, number four. We looked at that list that was woven through chapter one. To supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with being thin and being thin with brotherly affection. You see, the, the, there's a different list here. Sorry. It's impactful conversation. Character. Chapter 2, verse 10, it says, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. The world says, don't you tell me what I can and cannot do in my bedroom or in my relational life. Don't tell me what I, don't, you stay out of that. I'm not telling you what you can do. I'm just trying to point out what God's word says. It's a different character. They have a different appeal. Chapter 1, verse 19, and we have something more sure, the prophetic word. And here, especially those who indulge in lust, they promise them freedom, but they're stuck in this. There's... What appeal is there? The appeal is temporal. What do we have temporally? There's different fruit. Chapter 1, verse 8, for he says, If these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective. Chapter 2, verse 17, he describes these false prophets as waterless springs. Waterless springs and mist driven by a storm. We're going to get into this next week. But you have to picture a farmer who sees the clouds coming. And as the clouds are coming, oh, right? I'm going to water my crops. And it begins to mist. Oh, it's coming. And just then a big wind comes and blows the whole storm right over him. Missed it. 
they, 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 oh, here it comes, here it comes. Nothing. That's what the false prophet is like. There's no fruit. And they have a different end. In chapter 1, verse 11, it says, For in this way, <coughs> we'll be richly provided for an entrance into the internal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He describes these false prophets as bringing upon themselves swift destruction. Look at the source. Look at the message. Look at the the character of the person, the appeal that they're making, and the fruit that they see around them. And as I thought about these false teachers on your notes there, teaching heresies, what what is the issue? They are more concerned with what feels good or looks good that is greater than Jesus. The false teachers are so obsessed with what feels good or looks good, specifically temporal, than they are about Jesus or about his word. Now look, I'm not saying you shouldn't, you know, be healthy and, and eat right. I'm not saying that. I'm saying that there's times when we are more obsessed with the temporal than we are with the eternal. Now, I spent a lot of time on that. We need to go a little bit faster. But second, false teachers are leading others into sensualities. Verse 2, and many will follow their sensuality. Sensuality here uh, is defined as a self-abandonment. It refers to a lifestyle. This refers to a lack of control over oneself, often in the form of excess sex and food. It is associated with undisciplined and wasteful living. I I, I wrestled with, um, as I'm wrestling with the text, the phrase there, truth will be blasphemed, that kind of stood out to me because I think of blasphemy being against God, not against like truth itself. That seemed a little out of place. But I think what Peter is saying here, when you, when you talk about this following sensuality, is that what happens is we have God and self. And what happens when we are following sensuality is what we do is we just all of a sudden put self above God. We move that position. Self becomes greater than. My needs of the day become greater than, more important than. My desires become more important. And it goes right back to the garden. Because Satan said to Eve, if you eat of the fruit, you will be like God. That that was the temptation. So here... The idea of blaspheming truth is putting yourself equal to or above your creator. You know, it's really kind of amazing when you think about it. My daughters are very creative. Jam is an art major. She has all sorts of stuff always over my house. And she'll be making something for class. She's got to turn in and she'll say, she'll go, what do you think? It's great, Jam, we love it. Looks good. Be done with it, turn it in. She'll go, I don't know. It's not good enough. Jam, it's fine. 
and we can just see it in her eyes. And here's this thing that she's created. It's due tomorrow. It's done. And all of a sudden, whoosh, starting over. Now as parents, we go, no. But you know what? As the artist, she has the right to do that. That painting has no voice to say, I'm done, or I want to be different. I know I need to be careful here, but we are God's creation. We are his. Third, false teachers are exploiting others. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. I, I was just, you know, thinking this morning, I was totally I'm joking around. Man, this church is just so amazing. Um, almost $20,000 in two weeks to support our youth ministry. And I'm just blown away by that. And so in the office, I was joking with Rich. On Friday, I said, we're going to start a new Honda CRV <laughs> fundraiser for the pastor. And then I'm reading my text this week and go, ooh, that's probably not a good joke right now. You know, you, you guys watch some of this stuff, right? And God told me I need a new turbo jet. God told me I need, you know, need a new Rolls Royce. God told me we need a bigger building. Look, you can see oftentimes when you're being exploited. Other times it's more subtle. And so what we have here is getting ahead becomes more important than the needs of others. Getting ahead becomes more important than the needs of the others. Now look, a bus is a really awesome thing. But if the bus ever becomes more important than making disciples, then we need to get rid of the bus. Right? Okay, so... We, we keep those things in the right places. False teachers, teaching heresies, leading others into sensuality, and false teachers exploiting others. Now, what Peter does, and that's, that's the, the meat of the passage here, he then goes into three different examples from history of false teachers and their destructiveness. And the first, you're going, what is going on here? So let me just take a little time and explain it to you. He says, um, verse 4, For if God did not spare his angels when they sin, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. Wait, what are we talking about here? Now, there's a couple different options, if I'm honest. The one option is we just don't know. Peter's got a divine revelation here. He's describing something we don't know anything about. Most likely, what I believe is that Peter is talking about Genesis chapter 6. And the reason that we know that, uh, or I, I believe is the best solution to that, is during Peter's time, not only were they reading the Tanakh, the Hebrew writings, the Old Testament, but they were reading some other spiritual 
books around at the time. One of those was the book of Enoch. And in the book of Enoch, it describes what's happening before the flood and these, what uh, Genesis describes as Nephilim. And it says there that the sons of God had relationships with the women of the earth and the offspring were the Nephilim. And so what what is this whole story about? Well, Enoch tells the story that the sons of God there were angels that came down, had relationships with women, had these offspring that had kind of unnatural powers and abilities. And you say, well, we don't believe that. I said, well, some, I just want you to know, some scholars do and some don't. Some scholars that you even recommend, like, believe that. And Peter might just be playing off a story there. But in the book of Enoch, it, it tells us this was written during, before Peter's time. It's, it's, I, I read, it's a long, it's like 100 chapters, some chapters are one verse, but I read the first 12 or 15 uh, pa- uh, chapters, and it's, it says this. And it came to pass when the children of men had multiplied in those days were born unto them beautiful daughters. And the angels, the children of heaven, saw and lusted after them and said to one another, come, let us choose wives from among the children of men and beget us children. And Samajah, can't pronounce it, a lot of syllables, who was their leader said to them, I fear ye will not indeed agree to do this deed. And I alone shall have to pay the penalty of great sin. And they answered him and said, let us swear an oath and bind ourselves by mutual uh, decisions and abandon this plan, but to do the thing, Enoch 6, 1 through 4. So Peter is playing off this story. Now, before I come back to this for a second, there's two more examples here. The second example is the ancient world in verse 5. And he did not spare the ancient world but he preserved Noah, okay? And then the third example is the ashes of Sodom and Gomorrah. See what I did there? Angels, ancient, ashes, good. All right. (laughs) Now, in the ancient world, Noah was preserved. In the ashes of Sodom and Gomorrah, Lot was preserved. So there's a pattern that's missing in the first one. Who was saved? in this first example. When you read Enoch, it's really kind of interesting, actually. It's really about the righteous and the unrighteous. And the point of Enoch is that we need to be righteous. (coughs) So the righteous were saved. So he gives these three examples, and the examples are when unrighteousness becomes prevalent, God's judgment rips that unrighteousness out and he's able to preserve the righteous. He gives three examples. The angels sinned, they are judged. The ancient world was sinning and the world was judged and God found one righteous and he was saved. And Sodom and Gomorrah was judged and God pulled Lot out. He saved them. So his point is, again, verse 9, if these things are true, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials. So he's looking at you. And he is saying, if you are trying to be righteous in a world that wants to talk about the temporal 
in a world that's all about sensuality, in a world that's all about self, God knows how to rescue you. If you're sitting there going, this world is completely going crazy, God knows how to rescue you. If you sometimes feel like, I don't know, I think I'm the only one trying to do this, God knows how to rescue you. In fact, I think what Peter is saying is that it will feel like that at times. That it will feel like you're the only one. That it will feel like the world is going crazy. That people will say to you, you're weird. And you keep going because you know God will rescue you one day. Here's a a few takeaways for us. Difficult passage. And at church, I just want to remind us that we need to pursue growth in righteousness. If you just kind of eyeball chapter 2, very unpopular, but there you have it. Verse 3, he says their their condemnation from long ago. Verse 4, kept until the judgment, committed to chains. Um, Verse 6, ashes, he condemned them to extinction. Uh, verse 9, punishment until the day of judgment. Verse 11, judgment again. And then as you go back through it, verse 5, the righteousness of Noah. Verse 7, the righteousness of Lot. <clears throat> and verse 8, the righteousness of his soul that was tormented. There's a contrast. What is it that you're pursuing? Are you pursuing righteousness or are you pursuing the things of this world? Now, what we want to say as Christians is, well, I'm pursuing the righteous things of this world. Be careful. Um, I've been just reading over, it was in our reading, I think, again this last week, the parable of the sower. It's, just, it's right there in the parable of the sower. Riches and the worries of this world choke them out. The Lord knows how to rescue the righteous. Now, that word is hard for us, the righteous. In fact, it's probably used derogatory, you know, more of a holiness, uh, you know, you're holier than thou, you think you're righteous, you're condescending to us. Let me just remind you, church, we don't believe in our own righteousness. I'm not preaching, be thou, you, more righteous. I am saying we are all sinners, that we are all unrighteous, and that Christ, paid the price of your sin and my sin on the cross. He bought us, verse 1, through his sacrifice. And he has given us his righteousness. And so I know that I can grow in righteousness because I have the Holy Spirit and God's word and I can 
I can tap into that and grow in righteousness. It's not me buckling down and working harder, but it's God working through me. We see again the importance of the word of God. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths. <coughs> and many will follow their sensuality. Do you, do you hear that? We didn't, we didn't follow cleverly divine myths. We followed the word of God. Many will follow their sensuality. What are you following? The impact of the unrighteousness all around us. It has been heartbreaking for me to hear the stories of those who I did ministry with, who I went to school with, of those I admired, who have fallen away over the years. People who were close friends, who just flat out say, I don't think I believe what you believe. But I still believe. And Janine and I have sat and talked and how did we end up here and not there? And I, I thank God by the grace of God that we are still on that track. But there's unrighteousness all around us. I was working uh, in a restaurant in college and uh, there was all sorts of things that went on as I was getting to know uh, my college days, these other college people that were living many different lifestyles. And one of the things that just shocked me with this certain angle of unrighteousness that was going on was how blatantly they talked about it. And as they were just talking, 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 as I'm, I have to, you know, put the salad dressings in before the people get there and I have to get the napkins ready and they're talking about what they did last night and I'm going, I don't want to know this. And one day it just hit me. The more they talk about it, the less shocked I am. And I said, I think they're doing it on purpose. Right? The things that used to shock us don't shock us anymore. The things that used to disgust us. The things that we say, oh gosh, that's gross. We'll be watching a movie and we'll find ourselves cheering for that person. So my question is, does it disturb you? And I knew my audience when I wrote this, and I knew they'd be, oh, yeah, that disturbs me. So let me, let me ask you another question. Does it disturb you equally? And what I mean by that is, there's all sorts of sin. And, and it's just amazing to me, and I, it's conservative church, and we say, oh, the sexual sin out there just makes me so angry. What about the economic sin? Does that also anger you? You see, love God, love people. It means that we, we look at all this stuff. 
And my third question is, does, your, does it contrast Scripture or just your preference? I mean, you know, at some point in time, some of these things, biblical things, are just things that irritate you. When I was uh, in Cote d'Ivoire, um, I, I was a little embarrassed. Uh, we were talking with Rod about uh, family, and uh, Rod shared with us, and I, I've shared this before, but a family in Cote d'Ivoire, you know, let's say uh, he, man of the house, uh, got a big raise. Um, for whatever reason, or, or came into some money, inheritance, or something like this, he would never go out and buy a bigger house until all of his close family had a home equal to his. Or he would never do such a thing until all of the kids had a chance to go to school. And I go, uh Right? I mean, how many of us would buy a bigger house before we send our kids to school or buy a bigger house before? Yeah. And you go, Dave, that's just a different culture. And it is. It's a different culture that's wrestling with love God, love others in a different way. And I'm not saying it's right. I'm not going to tell you it's right or wrong, but it's amazing how we don't want to talk about that. So is it just your preference? When I grew up in the Baptist church, all drinking was wrong. Today in the Baptist church, some Baptist church, okay to drink wine, but not beer. Jesus drank wine, not beer. Another Baptist church, you drink wine and beer, but don't drink a margarita. Why are we drawing the lines here? Okay, and I'm, not, this is, I'm just saying that we, we tend to define things by our preferences not by actually wrestling with the word of God. The last thing I want to say, just, just by way of, of a takeaway here, is that what Peter is saying is that one day, and I'm going to put it on a timeline for you. There's not going to be a chart up here. You guys know I hate those things. I'm just going to tell you that according to something in here, one day you're going to hear a really loud noise and the skies are going to open up. And the dead in Christ will raise first. And then the rest of the church will follow him into the air. And God will judge the earth. And Matthew says he'll separate the sheep and the goats. Paul says we're all going to have to give an account. And so the reality is there's a coming judgment. So application and action, let me ask you three questions. Are you following the right person? Not me, only in as part as I follow Jesus. Are you following Jesus or are you following just a character of Jesus? Caricature. I can't say that word. You know what I mean? The little cartoon picture? I hate those things. Okay? I mean, we established at the beginning I'm overweight. I get that. And you know what happens when some cartoon person wants to draw you. Okay, you're just big. You're huge. Okay? In fact, my granddaughter did this to me the other day. She draws a picture. Okay? 
And then she describes the picture to her mom, and so her mom, being just beautiful, she, she puts the, the paragraph up there of what Leah wrote. And in the story, Grandpa became huge. And Grammy became small. Cartoon picture. Have you just this cartoon picture of Jesus, or do you... Are you following the right Jesus? And then are you committed to a right standard? Not an American standard. Not even a Christian, Judeo-Christian worldview standard. I'm talking about the standard of Jesus Christ and the bride of Christ. And I would say this to you this morning. Are you ready for that coming judgment? I don't know when it'll be. I don't know if it'll be tomorrow. I don't know if it'll be 100 years from now. But I want to say to you as your pastor and your friend, I believe it's true. I am fully convinced that Jesus will return. And he's going to say enough is enough. I gave you long enough. Those of you who want to follow me, and I'm going to deal with those who don't. And I'm not asking you to try harder, work harder. I'm just trying to say to you that today <coughs> might be the time to give your life to Jesus Christ. To confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord. To believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and say, I'm going to follow him with everything I have. Let's pray and have the worship team come up. Chris has a better voice than mine right now. Father God, thank you for this morning and for an opportunity to worship you. Um, Lord, even in the midst of a difficult topic and, and not having much voice, I pray that we would take seriously the idea of your return, um, the idea of our need for Jesus Christ, not just for a coming judgment, but for every day. I pray that we would bow our knees to you, our hearts to you, um, we talk about love, but then we're unwilling to forgive. We talk about the grace of Jesus Christ, but then we're unwilling to give it to other people. We talk about the evils of this world, but then we have evils in our heart that we're hiding. And so God, we just recognize our total and complete dependence on you. Just overwhelm us. God, I pray that we would be immersed in, in your word, that we'd be sensitive to your spirit, and that we'd be dedicated followers of Jesus Christ, in whose name I pray. Amen.